Here's a song you probably recognize. Maybe you don't know this version. The original recording of Solomon Linda's tune Mabube, issued as a 78 RPM disc by Gallo Records in South Africa in 1939. This song eventually found its way to the U.S., first as Weemaway by the Weavers in 1952, then as a monster hit for the Tokens as The Lion Sleeps Tonight in 1961, and it went on to have many more hit versions in the following decades. But I bet you might not be surprised to know that Solomon Linda died a pauper, largely unaware of his song's massive success elsewhere. Compare the lasting benefit that Mabube gave us to other cultural hits which didn't steal from their creators. Remember the Pet Rock? Gary Dahl created Pet Rocks in 1975, and within months was a millionaire. If you weren't around in the 1970s, you might have never heard of the Pet Rock, and that's the point. A novelty that has become a punchline, if it is remembered at all, made its creator wealthy, while a beautiful piece of music that is known by practically all of Western culture made its creator very little money. It's absurd. Even without the underlying fact that Linda was stolen from, the pattern of art making very little money for its creators, but other professions, practically all other professions and endeavors making far more for the people involved in them, is a sad refrain that has been sung throughout history. And it continues today. When making music, artists are, for the most part, paying for the privilege of giving us their art. For musicians, the gig economy is nothing new. They are pretty good at it, and on this episode, the first of a two-part series, we hear from bands and music artists about how they keep their heads above water, how they find balance in this upside-down equation, and we'll get at some of the larger questions involved, like why they often aren't paid the equivalent of minimum wage. And of course, lots of music along the way. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, and this is Southern Songs and Stories. Now here's a brief moment on another great podcast from the Osiris Network. All of our podcasts can be found at OsirisPod.com. Hey now, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. No Simple Road is part of the Osiris Podcast family. We're a weekly podcast that brings you in-depth and open, honest conversations with the musicians, artists, authors, and luminaries of the psychedelic jam band, improvisational music, and festival communities. We bring you inside the lives of the four of us that do this show, myself, Melanie, Apple, and Ryder. We bring you onto the porch and what it's like to live inside the long, strange trip. So if you like to laugh, if you like to have fun, if you like to learn stuff, come hang out with the No Simple Road crew on the porch and listen to No Simple Road on the Osiris Podcast Network. More news from the Osiris world is that Billy Strings has partnered with CasherTrade.org as his official secondary ticketing resource. So if you need tickets to a sold-out show, have tickets to trade or to sell at face value, 
Cash or Trade is the place now for all things Billy Strings. No scalping, fees, or fraud at cashortrade.org. In this episode, you'll hear from artists featured in upcoming episodes of Southern Songs and Stories, interviewed at Merlefest and the Albino Skunk Fest this spring, including Elizabeth Cook and Danger Muffin. You'll also hear from David Ball and Warren Hood and musician and booking agent Brian Swink as we uncover stories of how these artists make ends meet and peel back the layers of mystery about how the music economy works and how that compares to other sectors. Why are some jobs so well-paid while others not so much? I don't know if anyone can truly answer that, but we'll give it a go as part of what we're bringing you here today. But first, some music. Here's just a taste of Danger Muffin's set at Albino Skunk on Thursday, April 11th, followed by some of my conversation with members Dan Lottie, Mike Civilli, Johnny Calamari, and Andrew Hendricks. The band played acoustic and without their drummer, Adam Williams, that night.
way that we started um this band you know was playing the bars five six nights a week in charleston you know that, that really supported us and i rem- still remember the day mikey quit his job at the city paper you know and we just started gigging and from there it's um i think the trick for us has been to keep the overhead low hmm. not to get into a bunch of debt you know try to record the best album you can record for not a lot of money that kind of thing Johnny, you want to chime in on some of this? Yeah, I go to uh, ETSU up in Johnson City, and uh, I just moved there in January from Pennsylvania. Um, but what you were saying about how you how the band was formed, grinding it out, playing in bars and doing everything, festivals on the weekends, as many week gigs as you can find, I'm still kind of doing that and coming out of it, you know, uh, not out of it, but... There's uh, the opportunities with Danger Muffin. You have presentance. You know, my schedule needs to be a little bit tighter now. I need to be a little more prepared for Danger Muffin tours and stuff like that. But um, most musicians do have to grind very hard and have a side hustle, mm-hmm. a day job if they can squeeze it in. Hopefully they can. If they can't, or some other great side business, or maybe they married well. I mean, that's always an option. I mean, not that that's well, but you know. Um, but yeah, there's. Uh, a lot of hard work goes into to keeping things going so you could even play on this level to be invited to festivals yeah. on the weekends that you want to be at, you know. One of the things that seemed so rude that I picked up on was that how many artists talked about losing money on tour? Significant money. Well, you know, most of the time um, we, we have been lucky enough to, to be in the black, as they say, you know, with... with expenses um this run that we just did uh we we didn't really make anything on it but um we also felt like just getting into some of the I mean, we were able to play rooms like tipitina's in new orleans and you know uh you know like the scoot in and austin and it was we just felt like you know we were at a place where we could say okay we're not going to make a lot this is a lot of expenses but in order to do this run, like you know, the 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 payoff is maybe not financial, but in, in so many other different ways, you know, like getting to know Ben Kaufman and Adam and like the and Ali and really getting to hang with them and you know the the bonding that we did with them over the course of the the run and to, again to play these rooms to get we never even played Southern California before, so every once in a while, you know, you got to kind of like weigh it all out and, and, and take a hit where you got to take it. Yeah, I just wanted to say, you know, about losing money on the road. You know, the reason why that happens is because live music is entertainment. And, um, you know, as much as we would love to just go out and, you know, play our songs and and just do it in whatever fashion we, is easy you know, there's a certain amount of entertainment value that people want to see, 
you know, uh, a big light rig and they want to see you walk out of your tour bus and they want to see you wearing fancy clothes and they want to see you doing dance moves on stage or whatever. You know, these are all just little examples, but it could be anything. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think a lot of bands that are not, you know, profiting on the road are, are just trying to create that image of a high level of entertainment. And it costs a lot of money to do that. And so, they, you know, to be able to recoup that money via ticket sales, uh, you know, it's just really hard to do, you know, and you have to have a lot of people on your staff as well. You know, we just got off tour with Yonder Mountain String Band and they had five people on their staff just on the road with them, not including their management, booking agency, all the things, all the people who are not on the road with them, you know, their publicity, all that stuff. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of things on the payroll, man, you know, and like Dan said, we try to keep the overhead low and find this balance where we do a lot of it ourselves. We, you know, we're just really DIY and really hardworking and we're rolling cables when we wish we were talking to people in the crowd, you know, and it kind of sucks sometimes, but you know, it, it, you know, it helps, I guess, with the bottom line, you know, it's character. Yeah. (laughs) Most of the artists interviewed in this episode are full-time musicians like Danger Muffin. They may play in multiple bands or pick up gigs on a regular basis to make a living. There are also artists who make records and tour a lot, but who have other jobs in between. And there are even more musicians who play out and record music more as a hobby or side hustle to their main job. And then there are people like Elizabeth Cook, who never intended to be a full-time musician until she got, you know, a real job. Let's fast forward a couple of weeks from the Skunk Fest to Merlefest in Wilkesboro, North Carolina where she was playing with her band, Sauce. Here's a little bit of audience tape of her song, Bones, from her forthcoming album. Thank you so much for having us, Merle Fest. What an amazing experience. It's taken me years to be able to get booked on this festival, and I don't take for granted getting to be here and play for y'all. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. I'm so glad the weather cleared up, and y'all be safe and party balls, man. How about it for Sauce? My band, Sauce. My name's Elizabeth Cook. Southern Songs and Stories with Elizabeth Cook. We're sitting in the artist getaway tent here in Wilkesboro. Thank you for being on, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Been collecting stories of artists and their side gigs, their side hustles. And I know you've done plenty outside of music. Do you have any any good stories for us of what you've done to make ends meet outside of your music? Yeah, you know, I I didn't want to be a musician, particularly as a child, uh, coming up as a dream occupation because 
My parents had a band, and, and uh, there was a kind of a rough and rocky scene for a little girl to be around. So um, I went to college, and I double majored in accounting and computer information systems and got a job with PricewaterhouseCoopers uh, in Nashville. And, uh, man, I really hated that job. And and so, I, of course, I always kept doing music. I just wasn't trying to do it for a profession. I was writing songs and stuff. And um, I got an opportunity to sign a publishing deal in Nashville where they pay me to kind of own part of the songs that I would write. And so that, I quit that Price Waterhouse job and uh, started uh, writing those songs and making little indie records about 1999. There were record deals I was in and out of, you know, and um, so there were side jobs between those. It, but I got on some really expensive um, face cream when I was had a big-time record deal, and so I got a job at the place that sold it when I lost that record deal because I could get it 50% off, and that's why I'm the glowing picture of health that you see here before you today. Elizabeth Cook is, in addition to being a great artist, quite funny. Just check her appearances on Letterman and you'll know what I mean. She was also on the brink of being a big-time country artist in the Nashville hit machine, but it wasn't to be. However, she continued to make music just more true to her own vision. Playing Merlefest is a big get for her, as you heard when she introduced the last song in her set there. But, like 99% of all music artists, her take on gigs adds into an overall slice of the concert pie that is getting thinner and thinner. Currently, the top 1% of music performers take 60% of all ticket revenue. In the early 80s, that take was only 26%. It's a phenomenon that has similarities in many other areas of the economy, and you have very likely been affected by this trend no matter what your occupation. Maybe you've been squeezed just like musicians, maybe not as much, or just maybe, not at all. But that's only part of what I'm drawing out. As much as this might sound like it's all an exercise in harshing your mellow, it isn't intended that way. The sky is not falling. There's an overall point that I'm making here, and it's a positive one. Have you figured it out? Well, coming up, there are some clues after this. Hey y'all, I'm pretty sure you love music, so please support the music of the artists you enjoy hearing here. Hike, Mac Arnold, and Plate Full of Blues, playing right now. You can catch his episode, The Blues That's Got Nothing to Prove, as well as episodes on topics like the song Wagon Wheel, and much, much more. And I encourage you to spread the word about this independent project, and consider helping by subscribing, rating, and commenting on the show where you get your podcasts, and by becoming a patron. You can find out more at southernsongsandstories.com and at patreon.com slash southernsongsandstories. And you can keep up with us on our Facebook page, on Twitter at South Scenes, and Instagram at South Stories. Send me an email and I will be glad to get back to you from southernsongsandstories at gmail.com. This series is available on most every podcast platform as well as on Bluegrass Planet Radio. This is Southern Songs and Stories, the music of the South and the artists who make it.
Uncle Walt's band was from Spartanburg, South Carolina, and that's a bit of Since You've Been Gone, a bonus track from the reissue of their self-titled debut, a song written by founding member David Ball, who went on to score many country hits as a solo artist. Uncle Walt's band developed a devoted following in Austin, Texas, including fellow artists Lyle Lovett, Marsha Ball, and Jimmy Dale Gilmore, among others. I spoke with surviving member David Ball alongside Warren Hood, son of late Uncle Walt's band member Champ Hood, about their take on how playing gigs used to pay relatively more than it does today. I, I think that you're on. You're you're right on when you say you know it probably did pay a little better, but it's more that it's it's paid about the same for the past I don't know thirty plus years, and the cost of living has just gone way up. I know that in Austin you used to be able to. Well, you you know better it than me. It was the cheapest you, place to live in the country, right. and within. Three years. What would you pay in rent there for like a small... $75 a month, right. on 6th Street, three bedroom. And you're making about the same money then that you do now. And so that's why, you know, that that's the problem there. It's not so much how much we're well, making Well, in it. this crowd, everybody wants to be a rock star. Right. Everyone wants to go down there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of crowded. I don't, I don't know. Um, but did you support yourself in other ways along all, all through the years? I've always been fortunate to, to have a gig. I think uh, being able to play as a sad guy and also have my own thing has given me a unique spot where I'm, you know, if, if my thing's not happening right now and my latest record's really old, then I can go play with somebody else. Um, but it would be a lot, a lot more challenging if I was just doing it on my own. I will say that my cousin Marshall, uh, during the day, builds uh, preamps, uh, the Red Eye preamp that uh, we, we play through, uh, and they're really good. And so he, you know, spends his day doing that and goes out and plays at night. And now, I, I understand that he that. did. He does that about one day out of the week for about uh, two hours. No. A little no, more than that. No, he probably spends a good three or four hours a day doing that, and then he plays almost every night. And in Austin, that's the other thing, is if you want to make a living down there, you kind of got to play in five bands or more. And why do shows not pay as well as they used to? I asked Brian Swink, who has always done several things in the music business simultaneously, which currently includes playing in the band Big Daddy Love and booking talent for Midwood Entertainment. Here's a bit of Brian's song, Smoke Under the Water, from the Big Daddy Love album, This Time Around. Gigs don't pay as much as they used to. Relatively speaking, they're paying perhaps about the same level, about the same actual money as they did years ago. Why is that? Well, one of the reasons, I mean, there's several reasons, but one of them um, especially is 
there are just so many bands out there. You know, uh, one person said that there's twice as many bands and half as many venues. So you have a lot more competition. You have people willing to play for, you know, for cheaper or free. Um, and, you know, and then, of course, there's so much other uh, entertainment competition out there that I think people are going to see live music a little bit less these days or they're just more spread out. Um, you know, the all the big names uh, tend to do pretty good, but all the small independent bands who are fighting for, you know, eyeballs and, and ears, uh, just so spread out and, um, you know, and then the fact that, you know, it's the whole digital revolution, you know, it's kind of teaching us that music should be free and so people don't want to pay for covers to get in. So that starts hurting things a little bit more. You know, you add all that stuff together and yeah, it's definitely kept the prices uh, down pretty low. Yeah, there's a joke that goes, the two people talking together and one of them's telling the other, the show doesn't pay any the show doesn't pay anything, but it's great exposure. And the other one says, great, because my rent is 800 exposures. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's the, that's the, you know, the big, the big joke about playing for exposure as a, as a young artist. I mean, you know, it's a fine line, you know, you got to get yourself out there, but at the same time, I mean, you know, you have to understand that uh, music has worth and you don't want to put yourself in a position that cheapens it. Tell us about how the music scene itself, from the booking side, what do you see happening that's good, bad, or indifferent as it relates to artists getting paid? One of the things we've seen lately that that has really helped is all the breweries opening up all over the country. Um, people who love beer tend to really love music too, especially in the type of music that you know that we concentrate in, um, bluegrass, Americana, things like that. Um, so, you know, you, you have more stages and these companies have, uh, you know, some, you know, good funding so they can bring in and pay a, pay a new band, you know, a pretty good little wage to get in front of some people. And they always have, you know, typically it's always free. You go see a band for free at a brewery and have a beer. And, and so that works out really good for the younger bands trying to, you know, get around. You know, if you're doing routing gigs, you need to get from this city to this city and you've got one day open, find a brewery that'll pay you, you know, $500, $700, something like that. Um, and it works, and it works really good. So that you know, that's a good thing. On, but at the same time, these breweries that have free shows are kind of teaching people that they can see music for free. And I've seen situations where you know a town would have a good music scene, like you know Boone, North Carolina, in in say the mid '90s, and a brewery came in and started doing a bunch of free shows um, with really good bands. So. You know, the, the whole scene kind of shifted over to that. And, um, you know, that's kind of an unsustainable situation. So when they started charging covers, people were kind of turned off by it. And I'll never forget one night I saw a big group of people um, literally turn around from seeing a band because of a $2 cover. And, uh, and you know, it's interesting. I think it really hurt that scene. The scene has built itself back up. But there was a while, you know, the bigger bands stopped coming there because um, they couldn't make the money that they were used to making. So so it goes both ways, you know, and you have to try to work it both ways and understand it. And as an agent, when I'm talking to these breweries, I kind of try to explain that um, that phenomenon to them. So they're aware, you know, long term, you do want to charge for tickets. Um, short term, you want to get people in there. So just to kind of find that balance. What advice would you have for artists that are getting out on the road that want to book paying gigs? How can they help themselves in all of this? Well, um, one of the things that we spend a lot of time on is uh, 
promotions. You know, we see a lot of bands that just want to play gigs, but they don't want to promote their shows, and that is so frustrating to venues. Um, so, you know, if you're a, if you're a young band and you really want to get out there and playing, um, have your promotions down, whether you learn it yourself or you hire somebody to do it. But that's really key. I mean, you know, making sure it's on your website, making sure everything's up to date, you know, doing some dedicated posts for it. Um, you know, if you're wanting to get your name out and uh, you, you start booking shows all over the country, but you aren't doing those things, it really turns venues off and, and they'll be less likely to, to, to book you. Um, you know, the other thing I recommend to young bands is, you know, kind of learn about negotiations, um, find some negotiation books uh, that talk about it because, it's really easy to sell yourself short when it comes to promoting yourself or pricing yourself. Um, and to kind of have a few techniques. I mean, one that I use a lot is, you know, I ask people what their budget is. If someone calls, you know, for a private wedding or something, instead of just giving them a price, I ask them what their budget might be. And maybe their budget that they were hoping for is $500 more than I was hoping for. And so everybody's happy and, you know, everybody feels like they got, you know, you know what they what they wanted, and 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 it works out. So little things like that can can go a long way. The larger question at play in all of this is why some professions pay more than others. There are the usual tropes you can pull out. Manual labor is less valued than work, which is highly skilled. For example, jobs that require more responsibility and more productivity are more highly valued. That sort of thing. But here's what I've come around to. What people are paid is largely a reflection of a value that society puts on their jobs, as well as how common those jobs are. Furthermore, the less that is understood about a job often signals that it's a higher-paying job. So, for example, let's take corporate financial associates. You tell me what they do. I don't know, but their median income was over $108,000 last year, according to Salary.com. There are way more public school teachers... But according to the same study, their median income was just over $50,000. Are teachers really less than half as valuable to society than corporate financial associates? I think about common attitudes as a factor as well. How many times have you heard someone disparage teachers because they get summers off? There's an old insult. Those that can do, those that can't teach. And musicians... There's a good article in Vulture interviewing many fairly prominent musicians about their side hustles, and Kevin Olkin Henthorne of the band Cape Francis sums it up when he says, quote, My new album, Deep Water, is centered around the difference between work life and music life, which I've struggled with for a long time. There's a lot of shame around being a musician. When I go home for the holidays and get asked what I do, I say I'm a video editor. This culture is all about whatever really pays the bills, end quote. Then I began to fall so low Couldn't find no friends, had no place to go If I ever get my hands on a dollar again I'm gonna hold on to it till the eagle grins Nobody wants you Collectively, we tend to both idolize and denigrate artists, behaving a bit in the same way described in that version of the song Nobody Knows You When You're Down and Out by Nina Simone. 
It's a cognitive dissonance that is hard to miss when you think a while about why it is so difficult to make ends meet in the arts world. You know, I never told you what the overall point I wanted to make with this episode was, but there were clues. I'll leave it for you to decide why musicians keep doing what they do for now and revisit that question again in our follow-up episode, where you'll hear from members of our previous episode subject, the band Warren Treaty, as well as the Deer and Scythian. Maybe more, so stay tuned and find out where it all goes. I'm your host, Joe Kendrick, sending out big thanks to Zig and everyone at the Albino Skunk Festival, their sound crew Touring Logistics, to Sean Rubin at WNCW for mastering the Danger Muffin tune, to Lauren Spratlin, John Gillespie Photography, and Kim Clark. That's our show for now, and thanks for listening. The man that hath no music in himself, nor is not moved with concord of sweet sounds, is fit for treasons, stratagems, and spoils. The motions of his spirit are dull as night, and his affections dark as Erebus. Let no such man be trusted. Mark the music.